It's such a joy to get to speak um, this evening. It's a joy to get to speak uh, on Baptism Sunday. Um, I, I absolutely love baptisms. I got baptised here um, seven years ago when I became a Christian. And um, the verses that we're going to look at tonight are actually some verses that someone wrote down for me in a card um, at the time of my baptism. And I remember looking them up and they've really um, stuck with me since. So it's genuinely a treat to get to um, share them with you this evening. Uh, before we get to that, though, I just want to ask a, a question of you. What is it that comes to mind for you if I say the phrase, the good life? Because that's the title of our message tonight. It's the good life according to Paul. So I wonder, like, what, what does that conjure up in your mind? For me, there's two um, very opposing uh, images. One is of uh, a 1970s BBC sitcom called The Good Life. Has anyone here? Yeah, you know, I mean, a few people know. I mean, yeah. Um, I used to watch this with my dad, and it's about a guy who kind of has a midlife crisis. His name is uh, Tom Good, and he has this crisis, realizes he doesn't like his job, he doesn't like making um, plastic animals to go in cereal boxes, and decides that him and his wife are going to instead um, live very simply. Um, grow their own veg, like have their own chickens running around, and I think they have a goat at one point, and like make homemade wine that's awful. And um, that's what they've decided like the good life is gonna be. It's gonna be um, this very simple way of life, this life that um, doesn't really impact on others. The second thing for me that comes to mind is um, a song by Kanye West from about 2007, uh, just called Good Life, um, which is very much not about that in any way. So <laughs> I don't think he keeps chickens. Um, it's about, as you might guess, money and girls and cars and that. So they're two um, completely different ideas of what the good life means. And I think we would all say we want the good life. I don't think any of us sets out with the intent to live the bad life. Like, that's none of our aim, right? No one's like, desire is, I'm going to have the worst time. I'm going to live the worst life. I think the good life is appealing, but I think even from those examples, we can see that we have different ideas about what that means. Um, actually, it's a question that as humanity, we've been asking for a long, long time. Um, philosophers, the ancient Greeks, they couldn't decide, they couldn't make up their mind. They had debates about what components had to be involved in order to have lived a good life. And we're still asking this question. There was a, a course at Yale University last year, and Yale University's been going for 300 years, and this was their like, most um, subscribed to course ever. Um, and it was called Psychology and the Good Life. So um, it's all about the science of well-being. Um, so we're still asking these things. Um, we haven't really figured it out. But I want to make a really bold claim this evening, um, if you're up for it, if you'll allow me. I want to say that if we spend 25 minutes and we look at just two sentences from God's word, that we will have the answer to this question. And that is ridiculous for me to even claim that, because I've just said that we've been trying to figure it out basically forever. But that is genuinely how good and wise I believe God to be. And that's how good I think the Bible is. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the good life according to Paul. Is that all right? Are you up for that? Yes. Um, so we're going to look at um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. And um, I'm reading from the NIV, so if you've got your Bible, you can get that out, but otherwise it will be up on the screens. And um, Philippians, in the Bible, it's in the New Testament, so this is after Jesus has come to earth, lived a perfect life, died and been raised again. And then 
This is a letter um, to some people, a church in Philippi, from a guy called Paul. And if um, we'd been able to hear Paul's um, testimony, it would have been absolutely insane. The way that Paul um, was before he knew Jesus was entirely different to the guy who's writing these words. He went around actively trying to hurt and harm Christians and then he met the risen Jesus and was completely transformed and he started churches and so this is a church that he started in Philippi in Greece and he's writing to them maybe about 10 years after he's last seen them he's probably writing to them um, from prison somewhere far away and um, we're just going to look at verses three to six um, so it's the beginning of towards the beginning of his letter to them and it says I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Believe it or not, that really is just two sentences. So if anyone's studying English, I'd love to know if that is like terrible sentence structure or like a really excellent use of many commas because I can't quite work out which one it is um, but in these two sentences I think there is the answer to this question of how can I live the good life what is the good life if um, we were putting together components for the good life I reckon one of the primary things we'd pick is happiness I think we'd say if I'm living the good life surely it will make me happy Happiness is something which is regarded as important in our culture. In 2012, the UN actually got together and decided to um, establish an international day of happiness. And this happens every year. Apparently, we commemorate this every year in March. Um, but they, they saw it as something that um, was important. They, they took time to make that happen. It didn't used to exist, and now it does. And they also um, established... Um, a report which they publish every year, the World Happiness Report, and it, they survey people and then they rank all the countries in the world in terms of how happy are we. So I think we know that happiness is supposed to be part of life and it's supposed to be important, but if you type in how can I be happy into Google, you actually get six billion search results. So I think that while we think happiness is important and we all would say we want it, we're not actually quite sure how to achieve it. It's kind of difficult to pin down. It's a little bit elusive. Um, the professor who runs that course at Yale, um, Professor Laurie Santos, she says, being happy isn't something that just happens. You've got to practice to be better at it. And one of her top tips um, in order to experience happiness is to practice gratitude. So make a list of things um, every day that you're grateful for. And um, I see this as well, like on social media, I see like attitude of gratitude and um, even scientific studies have now shown that being grateful and practicing gratitude is good for us. It's, um, it has a positive impact on uh, sleep and on relationships and on work. So we can see in, um, in these studies and, and from this course that there's this link between gratitude and happiness. But this is where I think that the Bible goes one better. Um, so in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
So these studies would say that gratitude leads to happiness, but what Paul is experiencing is that thankfulness leads him to joy. And I think Paul's thankfulness is more than just um, a healthy habit, um, something that he does each day, an activity or something to tick off, but he's talking to a person that he knows. So he says, I thank my God. And I think the difference that that makes is massive, that he's having a conversation with a person who he is grateful to. And the result is that he experiences something more than happiness. He experiences joy. He actually uses the word joy 16 times in this letter, and commentators agree that it's the, the key note, the, the overwhelming feeling, tone of this letter is joyfulness. And um, his joy is something that is deeper and richer, more permanent and resilient than than just happiness. It's something that sees him through. He also says elsewhere that he's learned how to be content in all circumstances. Paul is experiencing this joy even when he's writing from prison. And it's a result of this deeper thing that's going on in him than just um, a, a habit or a, or a routine. It's because of this relationship that he has with God. I actually, um, I have a thankfulness journal. This is my one. So I do this before I go to sleep. I write down things I'm thankful for that day um, that I'm thanking God for. And I just want to give a massive shout out to you as a church because you feature so often in my thankfulness journal. Like, honestly, the um, staff team that I get to work alongside, my youth team, who are the best team in the church. Give me it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are. Um, the youth, who are the absolute best. Um, but like so many of you feature in here all the time. Um, I gave a shout out this morning to Martin Cheeseman, who, if you don't know him, he is just a Grace Church legend. And um, he was in here recently because I literally wrote his name down and thank God for him in here recently because um, we've been redecorating our youth room. We've been doing a bit of DIY and I kind of fancy myself as a bit of a DIY queen and I was like it's going to be excellent I'm going to teach you how to put up shelves um, and we tried to put up the first shelf and uh, like entirely failed <laughs> and I was in absolute despair and I found Martin I was like Martin please please come and fix this shelf and literally in five minutes the shelf is up it's done absolute savior like honestly my hero so that honestly that evening I was thanking God for Martin, and that's, like a, that's a funny example, but this church, I'm so grateful to God for it, for you, um, so I just want to thank you. So I think that the reason that gratitude is good for us and goes some way to us experiencing happiness is that we were designed, we were made to give thanks, we were designed to receive gifts, um, we were made to be grateful, we were made to be joyful. But we went wrong when we started to believe that things by themselves would bring us happiness. When we kind of excluded God, when we cut him out of the picture, we wanted the gifts, but we ignored the giver. And when we did that, we actually settled for less than we were made for. C.S. Lewis says, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. I think we've gone wrong when we've settled for chasing happiness when we've been offered infinite joy. But the good news is that Jesus has come to restore our relationship with the giver. And we don't have to settle anymore. We don't have to look to things, to stuff to make us happy. We can have joy in all circumstances like Paul. So alongside joy, the good life should also include purpose. I think we'd all want to look back at the end of our life and think, I did something that mattered. I did something meaningful. I did something worthwhile with my life. And there's lots of ways that we see this um, play out in, in our lives. There was a recent survey where 93% um, of millennials said that their, it was really important to them that their career path aligned with their values. So there's a trend now towards not just choosing a job um, because of maybe the status or the pay or the profession, but because it's meaningful, because it means something to us. Or potentially, um, we're a bit of a, an activist, and so we choose to um, give to charity or organize events or volunteer. We sign petitions, we share petitions, we start a hashtag, we make pledges, we um, only buy secondhand clothes for a year, or um, only slavery-free chocolate, or only um, things with no plastic around them, or... You know, we, we, we know we're supposed to be doing something to make a difference, so we choose to use our actions to do that. We use our, our purchasing power, our choices, to do that. Or potentially we're um, just getting on with stuff, and then one day we kind of wake up and, and look around, like the, the character in that TV show, we wake up and look around and realize, how did I get here? What have I been doing, this wasn't the plan, what does this all mean? This wasn't the aim. I think the reason that the midlife crisis and now the quarter life crisis exists is because we know we are supposed to do something meaningful with our lives. A like silly example for me is um, whenever a Premier League footballer makes their debut and they're like 19, I'm like, it is over for me. <laughs> I have not made it. I was talking about Harry Kane yesterday and we were like debating about how old he is and I was like, he's defo younger than me. We looked it up and he's 26. I'm like, that's it. That's it. It's, it's never going to be me. It was never going to be me. <laughs> Absolutely never. Like, I haven't played football since I was about seven at primary school. But there's something in those moments where I think, oh my goodness, I've missed it. And that's, that's silly, but like, that's what happens on a larger scale when we go through these moments of crisis of like, what am I doing with my life? Or potentially we just feel like there's so much that's gone wrong, there's so much that we need to fix that we just feel overwhelmed and we opt out. But however we respond, I think we all know that we are made to do something meaningful, we're made to have purpose, we're made for something that matters. So what does Paul have to say about our purpose? In verse 5, he's saying, he's thanking God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. When he's talking about um, this partnership, in part he's referring to the fact that the Philippians have um, 
sent him some money. So they've sent him something to look after him while he's in prison. They've sacrificed and given and been generous and kind to him to take care of him um, while he, he can't work, he can't look after himself. And to, um, to further the work that he's doing, he's telling people about Jesus and they want to get involved. Um, but it's bigger than just that one gift. What he's talking about with this partnership is the fact that the Philippian church are all in, that they want to work with God, that they want to be partners with him, that they want to follow what he has for them, that they want to see Jesus' church built and the kingdom advanced. And we heard last week that as church we are Jesus' body and there's a part for all of us to play, that we all bring different gifts and that we're all needed. Um, we're all needed in that work. I think that our desire to do something meaningful with our life, our desire to make a difference, points to a deeper truth, which is that we were made to partner with God, that we were made to work alongside him, that we were made for um, effective and dignified and work that really mattered, eternal work. We are made with purpose. But where we went wrong is that we gave purpose too much power and we confused our work with our worth. We got our identity mixed up and started to believe the lie that we are what we do. If, um, if you're as uninventive as I am with small talk, you'll, like me, as soon as you're introduced some, to someone and you know their name, the next thing you say is going to be, and what do you do, right? Um, it's just a go-to. It's the default. And I think it's because, as a culture, we um, place such a high value on work, but it's become more than what it was made to be. It's become who we are. It's become how we introduce ourselves. It's become how people see us. It's become part of our identity. When we're at work, we're measured on our performance and judged and um, appraised by how much we get done or how much money we bring in. And then when we are ill and we can't work, what happens to our worth then? Or if family circumstances mean we're unable to work, or even before we can work, when we're children and young people, or when we retire, what happens to us then? Do we become less than we were before? If we just have an unproductive day, what happens to our worth? The good news is that Jesus puts things back how they're supposed to be. He calls us fellow workers, but that work is not supposed to be something that's all on our own shoulders. That work is not supposed to define us. He restores our identity and assures us of our work before we do anything, before we do anything with him. We are so precious. We're worth so much. So the good life is one of joy, one of purpose, and lastly, one of security. We live in extremely uncertain times. Politically, things are unpredictable. We've got an election next month. Who knows what's going to happen by Christmas? Will we leave the EU if we do? What will happen? What will it mean for trade and our economy and the NHS and who we are? 
will Scotland suddenly leave and we won't even be the UK? Like, everything is a little bit uncertain. And I think you can feel it. I think there's a, a tangible unease in our nation. And we are potentially more than ever anxious as well. And so when I read in verse 6 that Paul says he is confident, it's so appealing. It's like a breath of fresh air. When I read that, I think, oh, to be confident. There are not many things around me that currently I can say I'm confident in or confident of. But Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The reason Paul can be confident is that he is not confident in himself, but he is confident in who God is. He's still talking about the one he calls my God. God is entirely reliable, dependable. He is unchanging. And when he makes a promise, he always keeps it. There's nothing that pops up that means he can't um, do what he's committed to. He's already seen ahead and he knows, he knows what he's agreeing to when he is saying he's going to see this church through, when Jesus said he, he would build his church. And when um, Paul's talking here and he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he is talking about the whole church. He's talking about the people at Philippi together as a body. And so this promise that God um, will sustain them and will see them through is for them as a people, it's for them as a body. So then this is a promise for us as a body, as a people, that when we're in church, then that's when this promise applies, that God will see us through together, that we will be how he does that, that we will support one another and see one another through. Um, it's, an, it's an individual promise, it happens in individual lives, but he's talking to a people um, that's, that's what he's going to do. He's going to see his church through. And when um, it talks about good work, it's talking about salvation. It's these testimonies that we've heard today. These are the beginnings of good work. Um, people testifying to the fact that Jesus has come and done something. He's changed something. And what he's done is he's saved. He's rescued. And this is all by God's grace. This is all not our initiative, but it is his. He is the one who had the idea before we were born. He is the one who sent his son to the cross to die for our sins. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's idea. This was his, his initiative, and it's his grace that does it. It's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we've earned, but it is the complete unmerited favor of him upon us and when we become christians we we grasp that or at least to an extent we grasp that that god has done that for us but then i think potentially we can forget the next part he's the one who has begun the good work but also he will carry it on to completion he will carry it on to completion i think sometimes we meet Jesus and he changes us and then we get busy with doing stuff in church and for God that's good stuff but we can forget that he is the one who sustains us we are saved by grace but we're also sustained by grace and I find that so comforting I find the truth in this so comforting 
when I am weak, when I don't want to pray, when I don't want to talk to God, when I just don't want to. He always does. We heard it in Lebo's testimony. She went through a period where she said, I turned my back on God, but he did not turn his back on me. And trusting in God's faithfulness, in his steadfastness, in the fact that he will not change his mind, he is unchanging, is such a comfort to me. And it's a comfort to us when we know God, that he will see us through, that he will sustain us, that it's his work that he is doing, that he's committed to that and he will not fail. In um, the Psalms, it talks about us being able to rest secure because we know that God will not abandon us. And the difference that this makes to our life is massive. The difference between being confident in God, being secure in him, being found in him, and being uncertain or insecure is huge. And um, I think about it a little bit like if you wake up in the middle of the night and you need a drink, so you want to go downstairs, but you don't want to wake anyone up, so you don't want to put on a light. Um, so you know you've got to go down the stairs, and you know that one of them's a creaky one, but you never can remember if is it the second one down or the third one down, and you think you've missed it, and then inevitably you definitely stand on it, and you're like, well, I've probably woken everyone up now. Or you get to the bit where um, maybe there's a landing, and you don't want to do that bit where uh, you think... That it's, that it's a step down and suddenly it's not and you like hit the ground so hard your whole body is like jarred. Or you're not quite sure like where does this step end? So you're doing this like tentative, I end up doing this like feeling out of the, of the landing for like where does it end and am I gonna like fall off the next step? And it's so silly because if the light was on, <laughs> you could just walk down the stairs. <laughs> but with the light off, it's like this ordeal. It's like this trek. <laughs> and you're just, so, you're just so unsure. You're unsure where to put your feet. You're unsure where, where things end and where they begin. And it's because it's dark. And I think it's a little bit like living a life confident in God and, and secure in him or not. So God says he wants to be our firm foundation and he says he is our rock and he says his word is a, a light, a lamp for our path. And um, that's, that's the life that Paul is talking about here. That's the good life. It's a life that is secure. And I think for us, uncertainty and insecurity is so unattractive and maybe scary because we're supposed to be safe. We were made to be children and we were made to be secure. In, uh, in a house, in an ideal kind of family situation, a young child is not responsible for or potentially they're not even aware of stuff that needs doing like the electricity bill needs paying or the shed roof needs fixing or the sink needs unblocking. The child is blissfully unaware of those things. Those things are not the job of a young child. They are the job of a parent. And um, I think that's kind of the place we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be cared for and known and loved. But instead, we chose independence, and that's what introduced insecurity. We tried to be the responsible adult, but really we've become spiritual orphans. We misplaced our confidence in ourselves 
or our health, our finances, our education, an ideology or political party. And then when these things fail, which they at some point do, when we are ill or we graduate and then we can't get a job or the car needs fixing and so the bit that you saved up as an emergency fund is now gone or whatever it is, we're shaken, we're insecure again. The good news is that Jesus has come to bring us security, real, true security. He has secured for us our adoption. He's brought us back into the family as brothers and sisters, as children of God. We can now entirely depend upon a good father who wants to look after us, who wants to care for us. Jesus has come to give us the good life, life to the full, life with the Father, a life of joy and of purpose and of security.